Pastor Mike will be preaching from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, so if you would, please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 10. Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 10. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And you may be seated. This morning as we pray for our service this, uh, today, we want to also remember uh, Tim and Kirsten Jenkins, who serve with Avant Missions, and they are on home assignment right now, and we want to remember them before the Lord as God directs them during this time and this year um, as they serve here at home. So uh, pray with me. The heavens declare your glory, God, and the skies proclaim your handiwork. All of creation shouts that you are and proclaims your majesty. God, we are inundated with the realities of who you are all around us, and every man is without excuse. Yet, God, we go through life casually and obliviously forgetting or ignoring or pretending that you don't exist. But God, you have called us to recognize your majesty and your reign over all. God, would you forgive us for not giving you the due that is owed to you as the one who reigns over all? Would you forgive us for ignoring who you are and for going our own way? God, for rebelling against the King of kings and Lord of lords and exalting ourselves rather than 
exalting you. God, would you open our eyes and lift our hearts to see Jesus who reigns on high, who rules over all and is worthy of all praise and glory and worship, is worthy of all of our attention. He's worthy of our lives to serve and to make much of him. God, would you stir in our hearts an understanding of the greatness of who Jesus is. God, would you help us to understand the weight of our sin, God, that we would come to understand more and more how severe and, and uh, how great our sin is against you for living lives in rebellion against you. But God, would you help us to know the greatness of our Savior, the one who bore the penalty for our sins in our place, and that through faith in him, God, that we can stand before you cleansed and pure and perfect and right in your eyes and we can know the joy of full fellowship and communion with you and that we would know that you are the source of all that is good and right so god would you let us know that even more this morning god thank you for tim and for kirsten and their desire to make jesus known God, would you encourage them and strengthen them, give them direction here in this time at home, and uh, God, that you would use them to proclaim your word and the power of your gospel. God, would you use this morning's service as Pastor Mike preaches to lift our attention to Jesus and to worship him with everything in our lives, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Father, we know that you use your word to do your work in us, and so we pray right now that as we hear from your word, uh, you would open our hearts by your spirit to receive your truth. Lord, would you change us? Would you open our eyes to see how great and how loving and how glorious Jesus is? Would it be transforming to us as we see these things in your word? We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Please find Ephesians 1 in your Bibles. Every once in a while, you come to some verses that sum everything up. And these two verses we look at today are such verses. I want to read them to you again. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And Lord, we pray that as we open the word now, you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in it, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, to hear some believers talk, you would think that we are living on a sinking ship and a lost cause, and that there is no hope. To hear some believers talk, it all hinges on politics and people and problems that get in the way of the gospel, and they give the impression to a lot of people that all hope is lost. They give the impression that Christian hope is only temporary, that it's subject to life's pressures and changing tides. They give the impression that if you could only move to a different state or get a different politician or find an answer to all of life's problems, everything would be all right. And it is so easy to live this way as a professing Christian. It's easy to live with a negative, defeatist, seemingly hopeless view of life, to adopt an attitude like G.N. Clark's inaugural lecture at Cambridge when he said, there is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. 
Many professing Christians cry with Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, as they vainly try to figure out all the world's problems, and they're just trying to fix broken airplanes and shattered dreams. And then they get false hope and answers from the world, dominating the conversation, nonsensical answers to gender and family and life, and we end up saying, we can't figure this out. Only God knows. We're not in control. Only he knows what he will do and whom he will save. If you're a believer today, you do not need to share the world's pessimistic despair. We do not share the world's pessimistic despair. We live with a persistent hope that someday future, God will sum all things up in Christ. Someday future, God will sum up all things in Christ. Perfect harmony will be restored in our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. This is what these two verses tell us. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 describe God's ultimate goal. This is big. This is the main point of Ephesians. This is the main point of the Bible. God's ultimate goal, God's future plan to sum all things up in Christ. And it's a reality anchor, lest success or ambition go to your head or pessimism and despair infect your heart. It's seen throughout all of Scripture. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was expressed clearly in the New. And it is a brain breaker if there ever was one. Someone asked me today, are you ready to tell us the ultimate goal of all things? And I said, my brain is broken. And yet it is filled with sweet beauty that warms your soul. This plan, it stands out. This plan, it towers above all the rest. It solves every quandary. It answers every question. It gives you comfort in conflict. It gives you perspective in problems. It tells you how everything will turn out. It's a predetermined plan. God's purpose decree guaranteed to succeed, his perfect will, his ultimate goal, and Ephesians delivers it. Ephesians delivers a lot. Ephesians delivers doctrine, chapters 1 to 3, big ideas, macro answers. And Ephesians delivers duty, chapters 4 to 6, specific micro-application of the big ideas and macro-answers. It contains the great doctrines and the purpose of God for the world through the church. When you get into Ephesians and you just dive, you just dive headfirst into the unfathomable riches of Christ, you find the answer to the shallow, self-focused Christianity that is so prevalent today. It's spiritual detox for world-weary addicts. In fact, some of you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I'm counting, and this is the seventh sermon that we've had in Ephesians so far, and we're not out of chapter one. Well, I'm glad you can count, first of all. And secondly, if you're saying get on with it, you have not received this message, you haven't grasped the message, and this seventh sermon is for you. And I'll do 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and stay in chapter 1 if you'd like. This is an amazing statement. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is one long sentence. It's 
one amazing statement. It recounts God's magnificent works. And you, you, it tees off in verse 3, where, where we're to bless the God who blesses us. We're to speak well of God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then what Paul proceeds to do in the following verses in this long sentence is to celebrate the past and celebrate the present and celebrate the future. You see the past in verses 4 to 6. Election in verse 4. Chosen by God. God chose believers in Christ with no input from anyone else to stand before him holy and without blame. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that believers were predestined to adoption. That God predetermined. If you're a Christian today, God predetermined to make you his own and to bring you into his family. Be glad about it into a relationship with him. Praise God's glorious grace for that. Then he celebrates the present in verses 7 and 8. We were redeemed. We were forgiven in Christ the beloved. In Christ the beloved, there is redemption and forgiveness and abundant grace, lavished. And now in verses 9 and 10, he focuses on the future. He celebrates the future, God's ultimate goal fulfilled. That someday future, God will sum all things up in Christ. What we see in these two verses, verse 9, we see God's perfect will was revealed in the gospel. And verse 10, God's ultimate goal will be fulfilled. God's perfect will was revealed in the gospel, and God's ultimate goal will be fulfilled in glory. First, God's perfect will. Revealed in the gospel. Verse 9. Put your eye on verse 9. Mystery revealed. It's done in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, literally his good pleasure. God was pleased to reveal this to believers, which he set forth in Christ. He purposed in Christ. Wisdom and insight was how God revealed his gifts of grace and further expressed that grace by making known to his people the mystery of his will. The God in the exercise of his wisdom and knowledge abounded to us in grace. The riches of God's grace abounded to us and he made known to us in all wisdom and knowledge the mystery of his will. We see that word mystery and we think of secrets that are kept. And if you have someone who's not telling you something, you're like, tell me, tell me. They're like, I can't tell you. You know you can find a way to get them to tell you. But God not only purposed and planned salvation, he revealed it. He revealed it in the gospel. He made the mystery known, and it's wonderful. The message of verse 9 is that God has done something which makes it possible for you to notice and to understand and to receive his perfect eternal gospel in Christ how you come to a knowledge of salvation in Christ and an understanding of the mighty eternal purposes of God is that God reveals it in the gospel. Romans 16, 25 tells us to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. God revealed his mysterious, 
his mysterious will in the gospel. It's very clear. It's been known in the word, in the gospel, and it's been sent to all nations. It's according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. The gospel is going to go out, and God is going to open up the hearts of all whom he has chosen, and it's to the only wise God that glory forevermore goes through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3, in verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now he's speaking as a Jew to Gentiles. And he said this in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It went through the Word. God revealed it in the Word. And this mystery, Paul says, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that God is saving people from every tribe and language and people and tongue. 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. It is Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Mystery. Sometimes we get hung up on this word mystery. In the New Testament, it does not mean some mystic secret that is only revealed to a select few. That is what characterized the mystery religions in Paul's day. You had to go to a temple. You had to go through certain procedures. Uh, and then you were initiated into knowing the mystery. Like you got a secret code. You got a secret handshake. You got a secret key. It was closely guarded, these secrets held by philosophers that thought that they were a cut above. And they were kept from commoners. Even today, certain cults and secret societies are based on these kinds of ideas. They, they meet behind closed doors. They're not open to everyone. They keep secrets. There's a lot of people who say, well, the truth can never be propositional because it's a mystery. You just can't know the truth. That's not the meaning here of mystery. It detracts from it. It's subversive. And people want to blur the lines of truth and round all the edges and not be definite, not be absolute. And that undermines Christian truth. Mystery here does not mean that it's incomprehensible. And what it means is that it is undiscoverable by your unaided human mind. You cannot figure this out on your own. You cannot work your way to God on your own. Man, by unaided human reason, cannot work his way to God. The mind can never get there on its own. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. So it's a mystery in the sense that we cannot, by our fallen mind and depraved intellect, ever discover or arrive at the truth on our own. God must reveal it to us. You think of the gospel. Redemption in Christ was prophesied, but the exact details were hidden until its historical fulfillment. Paul told the Corinthians, among the mature, we do impart wisdom 
is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, and that none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That God has made himself God of all nations. At this stage in redemptive history, he has always been, but he has moved to the front of the line with the cross. His mystery is revealed in the gospel. Is what he has always planned to do. It was according to his good pleasure. If you're a Christian today, it's because God was pleased to save you. It was that God was pleased to choose you before you ever existed and that he decreed and purposed to bring about the cross such that you would be able to have salvation and that you would be able to be with him forever and that this life is not about you just getting through the day or getting through the, the, the week or getting through your, the short life on earth, but this life is about eternal realities. The Lord has hidden from those who thought they were wise and revealed his mystery to humble babes. God revealed it in the word by the Spirit so that we would know the things freely given to us by God. So that we would know. The mystery is not something difficult to understand. It's just beyond your mind. That God reveals it to those who believe. It, call it an open secret. It's, it's the open secret of the Christian faith that God in grace and kindness was pleased to reveal it to us, that God made known to us the mystery of his will in the gospel. Paul told the Corinthians, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit. They don't believe the word of God. They don't believe the gospel. And there were not many wise called. There were not many noble called. The world by wisdom did not know God. We speak the wisdom of God. God gives understanding. And the mystery here is not some closely guarded mystic secret that only a few people get to know about. It's not something vague or hazy or confusing. God in grace makes known to his people the mystery of his will. In Colossians 1.9, Paul says, uh, From the day we heard it, we, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Romans 8, he says, Those in the flesh, all they understand are the things of the flesh, but those in the spirit understand the things of the spirit. If you're a Christian, this is what it means. If you're a Christian today, you understand the gospel and you rejoice in it. And, and that's why you say, Please give me as much as Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, as you'd like. You, you could be the smartest person in the room. You can have the highest IQ and still be a fool morally if you don't believe the gospel. To the natural man, spiritual truth is always a mystery, always ridiculous, always rubbish. And the work of the Holy Spirit is essential to understand the word of God where you, where you see the mystery of the gospel. The scriptures alone must always be our sole authority about these things. So whatever you're into in life, whatever you're interested in, whatever your hobby is, whatever your passion is, make sure that your number one passion, if you're a professing believer, is that you set your affection on the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Your mind and affections and Understanding aimed at knowing and living the gospel. 
mean, the, world, the world hates God. The world hates the word of God. They say he doesn't exist. They say he has not spoken. They say he is not trustworthy. And, and if only, I mean, I wake up thinking this, if only people could see that we have the answer in the word of God. This verse, verse 10, verse 10, one verse forward. The the purpose that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, this is the answer to everything. You're worried about your life. You're worried about what's going on next. You're worried about how to get out of California. You're worried about how the politicians are messing everything up. You're worried about how we can't get water, you know, to where we need it to go, and it's all going into the ocean after it rains, and you're worried about so many things. Be worried about this. Be worried about this. Be be most wrapped up in this. If only... Everyone could see that we have the answer in Christ. This is why we, this is why we engage in truth-based missionary activity. This is why I can go down the street and preach the gospel. This is why I can preach the gospel right here. This is why I can go to Central Africa and preach the gospel and know it doesn't rest on my ingenuity or my creativity or my wonderful personality. It rests on God opening hearts to the gospel. That God will enlighten those whom he will through his spirit. This is why I am compelled to give nothing but the biblical gospel. You need to be compelled to give nothing but the biblical gospel. Don't give people false assurance. Salvation is not a magic spell. It's not a secret prayer to pray. The Bible gives no assurances, no instructions for us to tell people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not found in the Bible. If you're telling people and you think you're evangelizing, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You're being cruel, not kind. It gives people false assurance that all is well. You know, all the purpose and plan verses in the Bible are for people who have already come to faith in Christ, who already believe. You can't claim someone's salvation. I've heard people say, I'm claiming so-and-so's salvation. Where did you get that? Not in the Bible. Only God knows those who are his, and everyone who claims to, to be his must abstain from evil. That's what we know. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who gives them to me draws them. God's perfect will was revealed in the gospel. Cling to it. And secondly, verse 10, God's ultimate purpose will be fulfilled in glory. He's revealed his perfect will in the gospel. His ultimate purpose will be fulfilled in glory in the future. Hold on. You know, don't jump the gun. Don't give in. Don't throw in the the white towel. Don't give up, believer. God's ultimate purpose will be fulfilled in glory. Look at verse 10. As a plan, it's an interesting word, plan, literally an administration, literally a household management. God is managing his house. The plan for the fullness of the times, that is, and here's the plan. You want to know what the plan is? Here's the plan. To unite that literally means to sum up, to gather again under one head, to gather up into one, to unite all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth. That's the goal. That's God's ultimate goal. I hope you're working for it. I hope, that's, I hope your plans are all under that goal. If you're a Christian, Every one of your plans in life, I praise God that he is so amazing and so wise and so kind that he would tell us, don't just run around and make all these plans. Just put your plans under my plan. 
Verse 10 is Ephesians' main idea, the incarnate Son as Messiah, the epicenter of the triune God's redemptive work, and is a brain breaker if there ever was one, that unity will come from vast diversity, that God will bring about his ultimate purpose. And you look at the state of things right now and you're thinking, how's that going to work out? I like to rewatch Kobe Bryant scoring 81 points in a game. And I always wonder when I'm like in the fourth quarter, how's he going to score 81? Well, I know he does. I like to watch USC uh, being beat by Texas in the national championship game. And I always think, how's Vince Young going to get over the goal line? I know he did. And God's ultimate purpose will be fulfilled in glory. This is the main idea, not just of Ephesians, but of the entire Bible. Everything will be summed up in Christ. Don't be worrying about what's going to happen in the future. We're so worried. You look at the average Christian and you think, wow, you don't have any faith. You're worried about everything. You're worried about politics and problems and people and persecution. You know, do you even believe? Everything will be summed up in Christ. All things in perfect harmony, in the rightful place, under Christ. All things, what does that include? It includes the regenerated and it, re it includes the created order. By the way, those in hell will be in the rightful place. Everything will be under Christ. God's revealed will and good pleasure was to sum up all things in the Messiah. Uh, by the way, the prophecies in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, lead us here. Psalm 2:12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's very clear. Christ's messianic work is, is the royal conquest over all things in heaven and on earth, not only in this age, but in the one to come. God has acted definitively in the Messiah to bring world history to its ultimate conclusion, and he will do so in the fullness of the time, it, literally in the fullness of all the eras. God knows the time. We're worried about the time. God knows the time. Colossians 1.17 tells us all things in creation and the new creation subsist in Christ. Christ's cross work is the hinge of history. It's all about the cross. It's all about Christ. Don't worry so much. He has redeemed his people with his blood and he silenced all hostile powers. There's not going to become anything against you that's going to take you out of the hands of Christ. And his work is the central act in all of history. That's what's being referenced in verse 10. That's why I'm so worked up about it. This is big. The fullness of all eras, the fulfillment of all time. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's interesting about time. The Greeks, even like, like Plato, He's, they saw time as a great circle, a cycle that kept revolving back on itself. That's rubbish. That's ridiculousness. That's a figment of someone's imagination. God is old school. God says, no, it's linear. And it's all moving to a conclusion. Yeah, it's a straight line. Everything heading to its conclusion. And he will sum up all things in Christ. History has an ultimate goal. When all things will be consummated in the new creation, in fact, 
If you go over to chapter 2, verse 10, and a verse that we, most Christians know pretty well, uh, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And then verse 10, most people take this verse and say, well, you know, um, God wants me to do good works. True, but look at the verse with me. Verse 10, for we, this is plural, we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. It's his creative work. We are God's, you gotta like, we have, we have creativity from God, and God used creativity with us. He, we are his workmanship, created. And that word created should just, bells and whistles should be, should be going off, created. It's the same word that's used in Romans 1 for God creating the world. That this is the new creation. That history has an ultimate goal when all things will be consummated in the new creation. And we are his creation. We are the product of his creative work. That all humans are God's creatures, but Christians are the product of God's act of new creation in Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says everyone who's in Christ is a new creature, a new creation. Created in Christ Jesus. You got the word play going on. Believers are God's work, created for good works, but we are his creation. When you look at these words in, in the first chapter of Ephesians, they just pile up, they just cascade, and they pile up to designated definitive markers in redemptive history. And this verse, central verse of Ephesians and of the entire Bible for that matter, what is God doing with this verse? He is broadcasting something. He is broadcasting what he eternally planned about extravagant grace in the present to sum up all things in Christ in the future. God's ultimate goal, God's ultimate purpose, God's ultimate plan to reunite all things in Christ, gather together again, literally, bring everything back, all things under Christ. Because all things previously were in perfect harmony under the Lord Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. By Him all things were created. All things were created by Him and for Him. Everything created was in and by and through and for Him. World, animals, angels, principalities, powers. Perfect harmony in every area. The Lord over all angels and powers and authorities. Everything harmonious. Flowing from the head. But that harmony did not continue. Our present condition is due to it. Your knee ache, your back ache, your headache, your issues in life due to this. Harmony was destroyed. There was a revolt. There was a rebellion in heaven. The devil rebelled. The devil fell. Many angels fell with him. But it wasn't confined to heaven. The fallen angel, the devil, Satan, tempted man and man fell and it resulted in discord among men disputes quarrels misunderstandings warfare bloodshed murder jealousy envy and everything that follows in its path and the creation suffered due to sin and romans 8 tells us the creature the creation was subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope. God had a purpose for the universe. When man fell, the earth was cursed. Ever since, it's been weeds. Ever since, it's been weeds and thorns and trouble and disease and a, just a big mess ever since, right? Harmony no more. Perfection gone due to the fall of men and angels.
And what verse tells us is that God will restore harmony and reunite all things with Christ over all. And we know how it will happen. Don't be so worried about the world. We know how it will happen. Redemption through Christ's blood. Reconciliation by his blood. He made peace. The separating wall was removed. Enmity was abolished. No distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ. Blessings only to those in Christ. All things will be under Christ. There will be no peace, by the way, to those sent to everlasting destruction. They'll be outside the cosmos, out of harmony. They won't disturb us in heaven. They're rejected. They weren't chosen and, and this, by the way, don't, don't ever take a Bible verse and make it into a crazy, crazy her- heresy and say, God's going to save everyone. Look, it says that he's going to unite all things in him. People in hell will still be in hell, and they'll be hating Jesus forever. But they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll just hate it. There's no hope for fallen angels reserved in chains in the pit until final damnation. Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven at their original rebellion. They still have access. Job tells us that. But access will be denied, forever barred from heaven. Revelation 12 tells us, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back and were defeated. And no place was found for them in heaven. Satan cast into the lake of fire where he and all his followers will be tormented forever. But the scriptures tell us good angels are in God's presence. Revelation 5, the saints and the redeemed sing praises of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. They sing the same chorus, 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands of angels. Hebrews 12 tells us that Christians have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels. A company of angels, not redeemed, never fallen, under Christ's headship, adoring Christ, will be with us in eternal glory. 2 Peter 3 tells us the present heaven, the present earth will be destroyed by fire. The elements will melt with, with fervent, intense heat. Every sin and evil burned out of the universe, fire pit of death. New heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells will be revealed. Romans 8 tells us the whole creation groans. We we are in travail and the pains of childbirth even until now. And we're waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. I know you're worried. I know you're worried about what politician we're getting in the next election. I know you're worried about California. So many people want to leave. I know so many things because I think some of the very same things. And we're all just worried. And we're wringing our hands. And we have Ephesians 1.10. God forbid that we would not just run to this verse and cling on to it. Hold on to Christ because he holds on to us. He is going to do what he has said. The creation will be restored, delivered from bondage to corruption and decay to the glorious freedom of the children of God. Isaiah saw the day coming. Isaiah eleven nine. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. 
Go down to the beach. Check it out. It's pretty vast. In the future, perfect harmony will be restored under the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who will be head of all. Everything will again be united in him, glorious beyond compare. And when it breaks, it will never be undone. God's ultimate purpose, God's ultimate plan, and man thinks he's in control. And man thinks he's in charge. But there will be no bomb, no virus, no chemical warfare that can stop God's goal. He might gather believers together in his kingdom in the fullness of the times. He will gather everything to himself in the future, in the new heaven and new earth, the recreated universe totally unified under Christ and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you are in Christ, you are involved. The saints will judge the world. This is, Paul is, is, just, is just lit up with joy, stating joyfully God's glorious works and that how God's ultimate purpose, his end game, it was no side hustle for God. This is his full-time occupation. It's according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3.10, that someday future, God will sum up all things in Christ. His ultimate, grand, and glorious purpose. And that's what matters most. What matters most in life is God's plan being worked out since the beginning of the fullness of time. And, and the number one question you and I need to figure out today, the number one question you need to, 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 to figure out before, before this is over is how is this future assurance going to change the way I live the rest of my life from this moment forward. This is too big to say, well, I'll think about it tomorrow. You gotta think about it right now. How should your future assurance shape your present life? You'll notice as you go through Ephesians, that there's a constant thread, just like through the whole Bible, of, of just continuing on in the faith. I would say this, if, if you want this to shape the rest of your life and change the way you do business and change the way you do family and change the way you do church and change the way you do your life, you need to continue steadfastly in Christ and in the word. That's the first thing. Continue steadfastly in Christ and in the word. Ephesians just keeps saying that. And even in Ephesians 6, it just says like, take up, verse 13, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Like you should spend less time reading news feeds and more time reading your Bible. So many people are like, I don't have time. Oh, just how long did you scroll through news feeds this week? Don't miss reality. Don't waste all your time trying to fix a world that's rotting away. Ephesians, by the way, just, just talk about Ephesians. Can we talk about Ephesians? Six chapters, 155 verses, a 20-minute read, a 20-minute listen. Shall we open up our Bibles and read it every day? By God's grace, seriously, by God's grace, I've, been, I've read it or listened to it, I think, almost every day since January 1st. I need it. I'm, I'm kind of memorizing it without even trying. 20 minutes. 
That's like, that didn't even get you through the first part of your, of your news feeds. 20 minutes. Continue steadfastly in Christ and in the Word. It's going to take more than five minutes, friends. He holds everything together by the word of his power. He works all things after the counsel of his will. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit. That means we're to yield to it. That means we're to be under it, not telling God what he did wrong. That in your heart, in your home, if you're the head of your household, you open up the Bible with your family. That's your duty. That's your privilege. You pray with them. Pray with each other. Read the word together. Be defrosted by the word of God. Word of God in your heart, in your home, with God's household, and everywhere God sends you. Bring the word of God to bear upon life. Yes, if you're a Christian, that, that's your life. If you've been told something different, I'm sorry. If you've got something different from me, I'm really sorry because I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know how. Psalm 119.99, I love it. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. If you're, if you're a student, you're smarter than all your teachers if you're a Christian because you delight in the word. Don't lose the last part. Don't, just go, to, don't, don't go to school tomorrow and say, I'm, I'm smarter than all of you. Be humble about it, but you need to know. I, I took this with me to Long Beach State in the, in the early 80s as I was a, uh, became a believer while I was in college, and I, and I sat there with my Bible at uh, uh, my desk thinking this verse going, wow, I mean, they're pretty smart, but I guess I'm smarter. You had to be word drenched. I mean, like Second First Timothy two thirteen, uh, the receive the word of God, welcome it in your life. Like put out the welcome mat for the word of God in your life. Don't resist it. Let the word do the work. You receive it. You welcome it. And where the word does the work, hearts are tender. Hearts are humble. Humility is the doorway to spiritual freedom. By the way, if you would serve Christ with joy, let God humble your heart as you cling to His word. Be more like the returning prodigal whose heart was crushed and humble than the praying Pharisee whose heart was puffed up and prideful. Continue steadfastly in Christ and the word. If you want your, the rest of your life from here on out to be angled towards God's ultimate goal, then it's going to be more than reading or hearing the Bible. It will be doing it and trusting it and obeying it in the power of the Spirit. And then secondly, commit to a biblically faithful church. Ephesians is just replete with... Uh, Example after example of we and us together in the church. And I'm not talking playing church. I'm not talking like showing up and not, not interacting with anyone. I'm talking about participating as partners in the gospel. Partners in life. You know, uh, the, the psalmist, had, there was a psalm. David was, was, was bemoaning this situation. And he, Psalm 55, 21 said, My companion's speech was smoother than butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. If you're like that with the people of Grace Church of Orange, repent or please leave. Colossians 2 should shape us, our hearts encouraged and knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Our hearts knit together in love. The truth transforms us. The truth mobilizes. God mobilizes his church as the son prayed to the father in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In the very next verse, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. The spirit of God uses the word of God to send God's people where he intends. So steward the gospel wherever God plants you with those he plants you with. Like you need to be in a church like Grace Church of Orange 
We're not perfect. We're, we're persistent. We're not flashy. We're, we're faithful. We have a plurality of biblically qualified male elders. They are godly men. Our elders and our pastors pour out their lives for the flock, knowing that we will give an account. And our goal is to preach the word accurately. We're not going to twist it to say what evil men and imposters are, are trying to currently demand. We're not going to be egalitarian or politically correct or round all the edges or do easy believism. We're going to rightly handle the word of God. And we're going to have biblical church membership, which means you might be disciplined, but you will be loved and you will be encouraged and with honesty and integrity and humility. This is more than showing up, friends. This is loving and serving and helping and blessing. Uh, you have a full week this week, I know, and it's probably very ripe with opportunities, but what will you do with them? How will you communicate the gospel in your, in your own heart, in your home, and to the people that you run across in this church and out in the world? You got to continue steadfastly in Christ and, and the word if you're going to go along with God's ultimate goal, and you need to commit to a biblically faithful church. And lastly, you need to care more about God's ultimate goal than your self-centered agenda. And, and again, uh, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 just hits that over and over and over again. See, the goal is guaranteed. All things will come to their proper conclusion under Christ. So live for the ultimate restoration of glorious harmony and praise the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Care more about that. This week I was at a uh, missions conference on Tuesday with uh, a good number of our men and women. And then on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was at a, a pastor's conference, shepherd's conference, uh, with a good number of our men. And you know what we were focused on all week? God's meta-narrative, the big story of the gospel, redemption in Christ uh, to the nations and through the church. And what I kept thinking to myself was, as God is providentially orchestrating all these things he's doing to get to his ultimate goal, I... I dare not push him aside in favor of my preferences or pleasures. That if Christ is preeminent, I'm pointing to Christ. I'm following Christ. I'm worshiping Christ. I'm serving Christ. I'm loving Christ. And, and I've, been, I've been hearing the last word of Ephesians a lot recently. And if you would go to the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24, and just look at the last word in your Bible. There. There. The word you should see is incorruptible. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That means that you love him with love that lasts and has character because he first loved you. And, and this is what happens when God mercifully wakes us up to his ultimate goal. We just love him. And, and I don't know where you're at today. I really, I don't know. You could have come in the room with a really bad mood. And, I, and you might be thinking, uh, my life is like wasted. My life is ruined. I've, I've, I've done a shambles to it, or maybe others have messed me up. And all I would tell you, if you're a Christian, God isn't done with you. And you're not useless. And your life has purpose because he has a purpose. And, and if you're a Christian and, and you go, well, I, but I'm just un, unnoticed. My life is insignificant. No, your life is significant. And God, oh, here's why. Let me tell you why. God chose you before you existed. And you might feel sidelined in your life. I don't know. You might feel rejected. I don't know. You might feel unable. But if you are a believer in Christ, you can overcome, and you can be more than a conqueror. And you know what the great thing is? The pressure's off you and I. 
Everything rests on Jesus. You just surrender to him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And just don't worry about all the details. And don't flee California. We need you here. <laughs> Go wherever God leads. It's like God is saying to his people, you're in my family. So all your goals must fit under my ultimate goal. Like, Christian, if, you, if, you, if God has an ultimate goal, then you have an ultimate purpose. And you don't need to be so worried about finding your ultimate purpose. You just need to be faithful to the purpose God's already given you to serve his ultimate goal. I mean, what are we doing all the time? We're fixating on what we feel, what we feel we deserve, what we want. We're doing self-care. We're doing mental health days. We're doing confused identities. We're doing preferred pronouns. We're doing pet sins. You and I need to have a proper fixation on the future assured by God that will shape your present response to his glorious grace. That's what we need. We don't share the world's pessimistic despair. We live with persistent living hope and in life or death. Someday future, God will sum up all things in Christ and perfect harmony will be restored in our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. It began east of Eden and it went through Noah and Abraham and the nations and Pentecost and Revelation and it will go to the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22 tells us in, in the future new creation flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb there will be the tree of life whose leaves will be an eternal testimony of God's eternal gospel given for the healing of the nations. This is what Paul is celebrating. This is what you and I need to celebrate. The blessings rooted in the past experienced in the present and waiting for us in the future. That's reason to sing. After the Lord's table, we're going to sing. But it's reason to keep singing, that we should sing the song of Revelation 5.13. Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. As one person said, let wars come. Let persecution increase. Let all hell break loose. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was near death, and Robert Bruce asked his children to read that verse to him, to put his finger on that verse in his Bible. And then he said this, God be with you, my children. I have breakfast with you, and I shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. I die believing these words. I don't know why I need to look it up. I don't know why, but faithful men of that era often used the metaphor of breakfast on earth and dinner in heaven. On the eve of his martyrdom, Nicholas Ridley said, though my breakfast shall be somewhat sharp and painful, yet I am sure my supper shall be more pleasant and sweet. Edward Panosian said, when a man knows he may breakfast on earth and take supper in heaven, temptations lose much of their power. Oh, for that day. Oh, for that day, someday future, that God will sum all things up in Christ. And Lord, we praise you that no one can ruin your decreed plan and it is guaranteed to succeed all for your glory. We praise you, Lord. Amen. And we come now to the Lord's table that is only for the Lord's people. It makes a lot of sense, does it not? That the Lord's table would only be for his people. Paul said, 
In 1 Corinthians 11, 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's table was received and delivered and we're to do this in remembrance of Jesus, proclaim his death until he comes again. And we're to examine ourselves and then partake, then eat and drink, remembering the mercy of God and remembering our sins that sent him to the cross. Jesus, as he was going to the cross, said, do this in remembrance of me. said this cup is the new covenant in my blood Jesus said as often as you drink it do this in remembrance of me and Lord we come to this table well aware of our sins and failings and praise all praise to you that we can come to this table well aware of your revealed mystery in the gospel and your ultimate goal to restore all things in Christ one day. And Lord, we eat this bread and drink this cup until you come again, proclaiming uh, your work on the cross and your resurrection and your promised return. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand if you're able? And we are going to. Uh... We're going to close our service singing the final verse of I will glory in my Redeemer. Before we go, let me give you a couple announcements. So, uh, midweek service this Wednesday night, a little different. It'll be a special treat. All of our Mexico uh, teams that went out are going to be coming back and sharing on Wednesday night, 7 to 8.15, right here. 
Before that, though, 6 to 6.30, we're having a budget Q&A, a really fun time where we have a Q&A about the proposed budget. It's awesome. And uh, this Friday night, primetime, bingo and dessert social, and then this Saturday morning, men's quarterly event. And then we keep praying for our turkey team that's out. And I, I know there's probably someone else I should recognize, but my eyes caught someone while I was uh, preaching. Sailor Short is here, and uh, she and her husband, Kenny, live out of the area, but she grew up here, and uh, this church has uh, loved and prayed for them many years. We're so glad to see you. I'm sure there's someone else I missed. I love you all, okay? Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's close with Romans 11, uh, 34 to 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Lord, this is our prayer. We know, Lord, from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever and ever in our lives, in your church, to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.